Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapters 101, 102, 103, 104, 105, and the epilogue of The Da Vinci Code. I might be biting off more than I can chew here, but let's see if we can get through it all in one episode. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. So this is the last episode of The Da Vinci Code coverage. I've decided I'm not going to look at the movie because I just can't bring myself to watch it again. And so from next week, I'll be airing two episodes a week of the 365 Days book recap that I did for Patreon last year. That recap's been behind the paywall on Patreon for a bit over a year now, but I'm releasing it from the vault. And I'm going to do two episodes a week. So that should take us into, I think, the new year. And then in January, bam, we're doing Break and Dawn. We're getting the Renezme resume revolution period of the Twilight Saga. We're getting that out of the way. I'd call it the climax of the Twilight Saga, and yet there is no climax really, is there? Unless we're talking about the climax on their honeymoon where Edward breaks the bed and almost kills his wife, but yeah, okay. Um, So that's, that's the plan moving forward. While that's going on, I'll still be dropping the weekly Fifty Shades Freed recaps on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash breaking down bad books. Just head there for access. You can get access to those bonus episodes for $3 a month and you can access the previous coverage, including 365 days if you want to binge listen. All the content gets unlocked as soon as you subscribe. And there's also Divergent and Fifty Shades Darker. Okay, so let's finish The Da Vinci Code. Where we left off, they all went to Isaac Newton's tomb for some reason. Basically, that's all that happened. And Silas and Aringarossa are still alive. Only Remy has bit the dust so far, thanks to those pesky peanuts. And we've just left Robert and Sophie with the big reveal that T-Bing is behind it all. And T-Bing's pointing his gun at them and he's like, hello, are you with me or are you against me? So we pick up chapter 101 and Langdon's thinking, oh man, what am I going to say? Am I with him or against him? Am I with him or against him? And he says, there was no viable response. Answer yes, and he would be selling out Sophie. Answer no. And Teabing would have no choice but to kill them both. I'm, I'm sorry. He's like, oh, I don't want to hurt Sophie's feelings. But also, he's going to kill us if I say no. So I can't, I can't do either of those options. Bitch, just hurt her feelings. Well, 
I think she'd prefer to have her feelings be hurt than be dead. But he's actually tossing it up. He can't bring himself to be like, okay, Lee, and like, just lie to Lee. Lie to the crazy guy with the gun. But he's like, no, nah, I can't sell out Sophie. That's just, that's just terrible. Even if I could turn around and tell her, oh, I didn't mean that. I just said that so he wouldn't kill us. Oh, it's just terrible. So Langdon's like, you know what? I'll just give him the silent treatment. I won't answer his question. So he just walks away and he just stares out the window, <laughs> contemplating things. And he thinks this is good. Me staring at this cryptex and also staring at the window signals to T-Bing that collaboration might be an option, that I'm taking the cryptex seriously, but also my silence signals to Sophie that I had not abandoned her. So he's really trying to buy time while playing both sides. I don't know if he's really thought through that predicament. The answer seems easy, but never mind. So he's just musing about the cryptex because he thinks with Sophie being held at gunpoint across the room, his only remaining hope of bartering her release was to free the map and then he could negotiate with Teabing. So I mean, it's so ridiculous. So he's thinking, oh, I need to, I need to figure out this cryptex. He's repeating the riddle. The orb that ought be on Newton's tomb. It speaks of rosy flesh and seeded womb. Meanwhile, meanwhile, he's staring out at the garden, including the branches of Britain's oldest apple tree with five petaled blossoms all glistening like Venus. He's looking at a fucking apple tree and he's like, what could it be? Five letter word, Isaac Newton, an orb, but not one that's on the tombstone that I just looked at. What could it be? What could it be? What could it be? That looks like a nice apple tree. What could it be? What could it be? What could it be? And so he's looking out at the garden and he's like, what would Sonia do? What would he believe is the orb that ought be on Newton's tomb? And Langdon ignores all of the stars and the comets and the planets because he's like, Sonier was not a man of science. He was a man of humanity, of art, of history. <sighs> Sonier and all of the Priory of Scion members have all, you know, devoted themselves to the stars. Based whole belief systems around fucking Venus. But no, Sonier's not a man of science, so it can't be that. So he's like, it must be something else. Must be something else. I'm just looking at an apple tree and I can't think of it. And we think he does figure it out at this point in time. I'm assuming the apple tree must trigger something because then we sort of cut to T-Bing's perspective and T-Bing's thinking, yes, it's working. He's going to come around. He's thinking he's going to sell Sophie out. And it also says for some time now, T-Bing had suspected that Langdon might hold the key to the grail. It was no coincidence that T-Bing launched his plan into action on the same night Langdon was scheduled to meet Jacques Saunier. He thinks that Saunier's eagerness to meet with Langdon could only mean one thing, that Langdon's mysterious manuscript had touched a nerve with the Priory. So now he's like, yeah, I really think Langdon might hold the key to the grail. Then why did you try and run away from him at the temple church? Why all those shenanigans if you knew you were going to come back around to Robert Langdon? And so he's thinking like, what's in the manuscript? Didn't he get sent a copy? Why would the editor send out shit to Jacques Saunier and not to Lee Teabing, the world's most famous Holy Grail historian? That editor is a really dodgy character. Like do your job properly. But Teabing's saying Langdon has stumbled onto a truth and Saunier fears its release. And yet there's been lots of books written about the Holy Grail. Teabing has written books about the Holy Grail. Robert was quoting Teabing in his book about the Holy Grail but apparently Sonia wants to silence him. I think Teabing's wrong. 
that's just Teabing's mind being a bit too obsessed with the Holy Grail. I think he's missed something there. But we're hearing his perspective and he's saying that he knew that Silas's attack would accomplish two goals. It would prevent Sonier from persuading Langdon to keep quiet and it would ensure that once the keystone was in Teabing's hands, Langdon would be conveniently in Paris should Teabing need him. Dan Brown's trying to make out like Teabing's this really big mastermind, but when you really think about it, his plan wasn't that clever. And it's also super not believable because apparently Silas had phoned Sonier and pretended to be a distraught priest. And he was like, oh, Monsieur Sonier, forgive me. I must speak to you at once. I never want to breach the sanctity of the confessional, but in this case, I feel I must. I just took confession from a man who claimed to have murdered members of your family. Now, we know a lot about, well, we actually don't know that much, but we know, if, we know enough of Silas as a character. Does he strike you guys as like a convincing actor? I don't think so, but, but, but we're led to believe he's been posing as a priest and convinced Sonia to meet with him. I don't know. It just seems so far-fetched. And so Sonia was like, my family died in an accident. And Silas is like, yeah, a car accident. And Sonia's like, well, you must be telling the truth. And he says, I would never have phoned you directly except this man made a comment which makes me now fear for your safety and the safety of your granddaughter, Sophie. So because of that conversation, Sonia ordered Silas to come and see him immediately at the Louvre. So that explains how Silas got into the Louvre. Then he phoned Sophie saying that she's in danger. And I don't know why he, he hasn't heard about the other three Center Show being murdered. I guess news didn't travel fast enough and Silas killed them really quick because he's not that concerned about meeting up with some stranger in his office. But he also had the bank key on him, so I don't know. Okay, who cares? Again, when you think about it and you look at it too closely, you just see holes. So now Sophie's saying to Teabing, he's not going to open that cryptex, even if he can. And Teabing's thinking, I think he will. I'm playing you two against each other. And then Langdon's like, you know what? I will, I will help. I think I know where to look on Newton's tomb. I think I can find the password. What? Why do you? He's clearly lying, right? Because why would you need to go back to the tomb to see the orb that's not there? And so now he's saying to Teabing, let's go look at the tomb to see what's not there so I can figure out the password. Just put the password in, which I think again is what he's doing. He's lying because he can't be that dumb. And Teabing's like, Robert, tell me. And Sophie's like, Robert, how could you? You're not going to help him. And Langdon's like, let her go. Then I'll take you to Newton's tomb and we can open the cryptex together. Why? Why do you need to do it at the tomb? And Sophie, she says, I'm not going anywhere. That cryptex was given to me by my grandfather. It's not yours to open. Again, it wasn't given to her. It was sort of hidden behind a painting, scribbles on the floor in invisible ink. Didn't really have any other choices. And Langdon's like, don't be mad at me. I'm trying to help you. And she's like, help me. You're not trying to help me. You can't help me by unveiling the secret my grandfather died trying to protect. So now Sophie has leverage, even though she's still being held at gunpoint. She's like, Langdon, you have to give me the cryptex or smash it on the floor right now or I'm not going. And it's like, you're also held under gunpoint. So I don't know why you're calling the shots. And Langdon's like, Sophie, no. And she says, my grandfather would prefer his secret lost forever than see it in the hands of his murderer. If that were the case, that he'd prefer to see his secret lost forever than see it in the hands of his murderer, he would have just died and not written the code for the bank vault on the floor and hidden the key. 
if he was truly fine with the secret dying, he would have just died. And Sophie's like, shoot me if I have to. And T-Bing's like, yeah, I might actually. So he aims the gun again at her. He was, he was holding the gun at her that whole time. But now it says T-Bing aimed the weapon. What, what you, what you aimed at better? What? And so Langdon's like, Lee, don't do it or I'll drop the cryptex. And Taving's like, Matt, you already tried that at Temple Church. I'm not going to fall for it. And he says, Robert, do you really know where on the tomb to look? And he says, I do. And Lee's like, mm, you're lying to me. And yeah, because the clue specifically says it's not on the tomb. So now Taving's thinking, I'm going to have to kill him. And God, I wish he would. God, I wish he would. So basically it's a standoff. And so Langdon pretends like he's going to put the cryptex down on the floor. All this hubbub over the cryptex, which Teabing just handed to Robert. And now he's like, give it back. And it's like, what? Just, why does anyone in this book do what they do? I don't know. So then he goes, I'm sorry, Lee. And he throws it up in the air. And so then Lee's like, oh, fuck. So he shoots his gun. The bullet hits the ground. So that doesn't matter. But then he's like launching to try and catch the cryptex. Because the vinegar inside, if the glass vial smashes, the vinegar will ruin the papyrus. That whole big thing. So Teabing's like, and he's flailing about and he's not very spry. So he's not doing a good job of catching the cryptex. Let's just say that. So basically he just falls over and the cryptex smashes anyway. And he's like, oh damn. And he can hear the vinegar streaming out of the cryptex. And he's like, Robert, you fool, the secret is lost. The grail is gone. Everything is destroyed. And, and you know what? Like, this was just the easiest way to find the grail. I think if you tried hard enough, Lee, you could still find the grail. So Teabing's looking at the cryptex and he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's empty. There's no dissolving papyrus. And then he looks and the dials were no longer at random. They spelled a five letter word, apple. And Langdon, he's got to like, explain it because he's like, yeah, I figured it out. He says the orb from which Eve partook incurring the holy wrath of God, original sin, the symbol of the fall of the sacred feminine. He acts like he's known it all along, but he, he struggled to come to that realization. If it weren't for the apple tree, I don't think he would have ever guessed it. If that was a peach tree in the garden, we'd all be fucked. And Teabing's like, oh God, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. The rosy apple that fell from heaven and struck Newton on the head and inspired his life's work. His labor's fruit, the rosy flesh with the seeded womb. Oh, it all makes sense. Good job. And so Teabing's like, tell me, Robert, tell me, tell me. You've seen the map. Tell me where she is. Tell me where she is. It's not too late. Tell me where she is. And he's still just on the floor. I think that little fall really took it out of him because he's not getting up. And then the doors burst open and there's Bezu Fash. Bezu Fash of all people. He enters this empty room. It's an empty room with three people in it. And it says his feral eyes scanned the room, finding his target, Lee Teabing. Yeah, he's the guy that's on the floor. Congratulations on finding him. Also, he's been drinking all morning, so he must be half cut. And he's like, oh, Agent Nouveau, I'm relieved you and Mr. Langdon are safe. You should have come in when I asked. So all of a sudden he's the hero of the piece. And Sophie's like, how did you find us? And so he points at Teabing and he says, he made the mistake of showing his ID when he entered the Abbey. The guards heard a police broadcast about our search for him. And yet they, they still let him in. Maybe they heard the broadcast search after they let him in. I don't know. It all comes back to the metal detectors. Thank God the metal detectors had a purpose. 
And so then Tabing sounds like a complete nut job because he's like, the map to the Holy Grail is in his pocket. And Langdon's like, what are you talking about? And he says, tell me, tell me where it's hidden. And Langdon says, only the worthy find the Grail, Lee. You taught me that. Mic drop, end of chapter. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So then we go to chapter 102 and Silas is walking through the gardens in the rain. Okay, so there's a police broadcast out for Teabing and Teabing gets caught, but this half-naked, bloody albino monk is waltzing around London and no one's batting an eyelid. And he's got blood flowing from the bullet wound below his ribs. And everyone's like, hello, governor. Can I interest you in a fry up in a spot of black pudding? And he's just like, no, nah, I'm just going to the garden to die. So he's, yeah, he's, he's got the rain coming down. He's walking into the mist, feeling like he's becoming a ghost again. A breeze rustles past him, carrying the damp, earthy scent of new life. Basically, it's the a little fall of rain scene from Les Mis. And then he dies. All right, well, that's, <laughs> that's Silas done. Okay, so then chapter 103. It's now late afternoon and Bezu Fasha just left the interrogation room. Teabing had proclaimed his innocence and yet he thinks that Teabing's trying to get an insanity defense because he keeps talking about the Holy Grail and mysterious brotherhoods and secret documents. And Fasha's thinking, insane my ass. Teabing had displayed ingenious precision in formulating a plan that protected his innocence at every turn. And, and yet he got caught. So it wasn't that ingenious, was it? Fash thinks he had exploited both the Vatican and Opus Dei, two groups that turned out to be completely innocent. Completely innocent? Opus Dei, completely innocent. Did Silas not murder people? He murdered 
five, at least five, because there was the four Priory members and then there was that poor bitch at the saint Sulpice. And then it says, more clever still, more clever still, Teabing had situated his electronic listening post in the one place a man with polio could not possibly reach. The actual surveillance had been carried out by his manservant, Remy. So he's like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know there was a listening post up in my barn because I can't climb a ladder. Ingenious. No one would ever link them. And so then he's thinking about how Teabing bugged everyone through Trojan horses. He'd give them like presents and then like secretly there would be listening devices buried in them. What the hell? So he'd invited Sonia over because he was like, oh, I want to fund a new Da Vinci wing at the Louvre. And also, could you bring for me to have a look that little statue of a knight that I've heard that you built? And so then while he was having dinner at Chateau Vallette, Sonia went to the bathroom to do a shit or something and he bugged the knight statue. And then Sonia was like, okay, I'm taking this knight statue back to my office now. What? How convoluted is that? So now Fash is going to the hospital to visit Bishop Arangarossa, who's still alive somehow. I really wish he died. And we get the backstory where last night, Arangarossa had received a call from Bezu Fash, questioning the bishop about his apparent connection to a nun who had been murdered in the St. Sulpice. And so that's when Arangarossa realized that the evening had taken a horrifying turn. And then he found out about the other four murders. So he didn't know what Silas was up to, allegedly. I still don't trust the bastard, but allegedly he had nothing to do with it. And he was like, oh, Silas, what are you doing? And then when he couldn't reach the teacher, he's like, oh, we've been duped. Oh no, we've been duped. So he confessed everything to Fash. And then since then, Fash had been racing to catch up with Silas before the teacher persuaded him to kill again. So Arangaros is like, I really cooked that one. Whoopsie daisy. And he's thinking about how the teacher Teabing had chosen Arangarossa as the perfect pawn because who else was more likely to leap blindly after the Holy Grail than a man with everything to lose? So he's like, oh my God, Teabing played me. The blind see what they want to see. I was duped because of all that Vatican drama. I was just in the wrong headspace and I got duped. And so Arangarossa says to Fash, he goes, look, you know, those people that Silas killed, can you give that briefcase of money to their families? And so Fash is like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then on the TV, a French police officer was giving a press conference in front of a sprawling mansion. I don't know why the BBC is reporting on some French guy in, in France, but okay. So Lieutenant Colette saying in, I guess, English, because the BBC are reporting it. He's saying that Captain Fash seldom makes mistakes because the journalist was like, Fash just led a manhunt against two innocent people. Is this going to cost Fash his job? And Colette says, nah. Knowing how he operates, I suspect his public manhunt was part of a ruse to lure out the real killer. And, and so that's that. So then Fash is going to be fine. It's all getting wrapped up in a neat little package. Colette says, all I can confirm at this point is that the captain has successfully arrested the man responsible and that Mr. Langdon and Agent Nouveau are both innocent and safe. Why is the BBC not in fucking London reporting on this? A dead body of Silas was found in the park. Some historians been arrested, screaming about the Holy Grail, leaving Westminster Abbey. I mean, I know there weren't any tourists there because it's a desolate wasteland, the Abbey. Surely that's been picked up by the media in London. But no, we're sending a reporter out to Chateau Vallette of all places to do a roving piece. We're getting the foreign correspondent involved. I don't, I don't understand it. And so then Fash says, ah, Colette, 
a good man that Colette. No, I, honestly, I don't think Colette's trying to do fascist solid. I think Colette's trying to bury things under the rug with his own fuck ups throughout the night. Remember when he just let them escape the bank? I think he's in damage control. And so then Fash says, oh, look, Bishop, one little thing. I, I know you're like super innocent and everything, but mm, your impromptu flight to London, you bribed a pilot to change course. In doing so, you broke a number of international laws. And Aaron Garros is like, I was desperate. And Fash says, yeah, and so was the pilot when my men interrogated him. And so then he hands over the ring, the ring that Aaron Garrosso bribed the pilot with. And so, and so that's that. He just said, look, you broke a number of international laws, but don't worry about it. I got you. And here's the ring. And we'll let the pilot cop all of the flack. And Aaron Garrosso is like, oh, thank you. And he's crying. And he puts the ring back on his finger. I'm sorry. Why does Bezu Fash get to override international law? How did he get that authority? And this poor pilot's probably going to be dragged to prison. Or lose his license, at least. That poor bastard. All he wanted was a nice ring. And so then the two old bastards just sit there in the hospital thinking about what they're going to do next. End of chapter. So then we go to chapter 104. And we're in Edinburgh. How about that? We're in Edinburgh at Roseland Chapel or Roseland Chapel. It's a chapel that was built by the Knights Templar in 1446. Oh, blah, blah, blah. It's filled with religious symbols and pagan symbols everywhere. The chapel's geographic coordinates fall precisely on the north-south meridian that runs through Glastonbury, which is the Rose Line, the traditional marker of King Arthur's Isle of Athlone. blah, blah, fucking blah. Basically, it's where they think the Grail is buried. Because Sonia's final message, it wasn't a map, by the way, it was another riddle, who would have guessed? This fucking Sonia, a cryptex with a riddle, and then another cryptex with another riddle, and then you open that cryptex and there's another fucking riddle. It said something about the Holy Grail underneath ancient Rosalind Waits. We don't hear the full poem yet, but Langdon says like, oh, it's very explicit. Those lines point without a doubt to this very spot, without a doubt. And yet, of course, it's going to be the wrong spot. And Langdon, he's also thinking like, oh, even though it's without a doubt this place, it does seem a bit too obvious. And it's like, if it's that obvious, why has no one ever checked it? Why did T-Bing, who studied the fucking place, never check it? Why has no one ever thought to be like, huh, huh, let's go here? Because Langdon says, for centuries, this stone chapel had echoed with whispers of the Holy Grail's presence. They've already been, there's already been whispers about it. The whispers had turned into shouts in recent decades when ground penetrating radar (laughs) revealed the presence of an astonishing structure beneath the chapel, a massive subterranean chamber. So all of those Holy Grail conspiracy theorists assume it's there and yet it's not come up the whole fucking book. 104 chapters in and now they're like, oh yeah, there's this place that everyone widely considers holds the Holy Grail. Maybe, maybe that's where we should look. And T-Bing this whole time had been living in France because he assumes that the Holy Grail's in France. Why does he assume that? If it's also obvious that it's in this other chapel in Edinburgh. What the... And archaeologists wanted to go into this chamber and the church forbade it. And they're like, what are they trying to hide? And so now the site had become a pilgrimage for mystery seekers because they, they all think the Holy Grail's there. And Langdon thought it was so stupid that everyone thought it was there Okay, I don't know what side he's playing at because he's like, oh, it's so obvious, it's not obvious enough. Oh, it's so stupid. Oh, I do believe it's here 100%. But also 
I've always thought it would never be here. What? Get your shit together. And also, they flew here. They flew. All this hubbub in London this morning, and then they just hop on a flight. An international flight. With what passports? His passport's back in France. I don't think she packed a passport either. And yet they're all, they're all catching flights. So yeah, so Langdon always laughed whenever anyone said that they would want to try and find a way to break into the vault to find the Holy Grail at the Rosalind Chapel. He says, true Grail academics agreed that Rosalind was a decoy. One of the devious dead ends the Priory crafted so convincingly. Okay, so if everyone agrees, why are you here? And he doesn't even know. He's like, oh, why would Sonia go to such an effort to guide us to so obvious a location? And he's like, hmm, must be something we don't understand. But that's why we have to come here in person and have a look. So they go into this chapel. The Knights Templar built it as a version of Solomon's temple, echoing the Grail's original hiding place. The door had a star of David on it and it said Roslyn. And then Langdon, of course, explains to Sophie that Roslyn, the ancient spelling of Roslyn, derived from the rose line on which the chapel sat, or the line of the rose, meaning the ancestral lineage of Mary Magdalene. Oh, oh God. So they go in, there's a bunch of fucking symbols that he talks about at length. And then the docent sees them and they're like, okay, I'm just, we're closing up soon, but have a little look around if you want. And then Sophie, she's like, hmm, I think I've been here before. And Langdon goes straight to negging her. He never, he never trusts her gut instinct. He goes, mm, you said you'd never even heard of it. You've never even heard of Rosalind Chapel. And she's like, yeah, well, I hadn't, but I feel like I've been here. It feels familiar. Maybe my grandfather brought me here when I was a child. And Langdon's like, "Mm, I doubt it. (laughs) And she goes, no, no, those pillars over there, they look familiar. I feel like I've seen them before. And Langdon says, yeah, I'm sure you have. I don't doubt that you've seen them, but that doesn't mean it was here. Those two pillars are the most duplicated architectural structures in history. Replicas exist all over the world. Those are the two pillars from Solomon's temple, you big dummy. So of course you've seen that before. Every Masonic temple in the world has two pillars like this. And she's like, okay, I understand what you're saying. But what I'm saying is that I've never been to a Masonic temple, but this place feels familiar. And Robert's like, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know about that, toots. And so the docent comes up. And he's a handsome young man in his late 20s with a Scottish brogue and strawberry blonde hair. So he looks nothing like Sophie, sounds nothing like Sophie, and yet it's her long lost brother, spoiler alert. And so then she says, oh, there's a code here, there's a code here. And he goes, yes, ma'am, it's on the ceiling. And she's like, I knew it, I remember it. And Langdon's like, "Hmm, I don't think you do. And the docent, he's like, yeah, he gives a bit of backstory, but Sophie just walks off because she's like, yeah, 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 I've been here before. She has a little flashback because it wouldn't be our farewell of the Da Vinci Code without another little flashback. And so she was there with her grandpere and she was like, grandpere, I'm tired, can we go? And he's like, yeah, I gotta do something first. And she's like, okay, well, I'll just wait here looking at the code on the ceiling. And he's like, okay, all right, well, I'm gonna go and have a chat to someone. She walks outside. And then he's talking to someone at this little cottage at the back of the church. And he's talking to this person through the screen door. Sophie can't see who it is, but Grandpere blows a kiss towards this person and then comes back walking to Sophie crying. And she says, why are you crying, Grandpere? And he says, oh, Sophie, you and I have said goodbye to a lot of people this year. It's hard. And she's like, well, who are you saying goodbye to? Because the accident has already happened. You know where that clown car crashed? 
with the mother, the father, the grandmother, the baby brother. Okay, I guess that's not a lot of people to fit in the car, but I thought Sophie and the granddad were in the car as well. So I'm like, six people in one car? I don't know, it doesn't, doesn't sound safe. And he's like, yeah, Sophie, I was saying goodbye to a dear friend whom I love very much and I fear I will not see her again for a very long time. So Sophie's off with the fairies having that recollection and Langdon's still walking around pointing out the symbols, like we care. At this point, I really do not care. He's given us the backstory of the Star of David. No disrespect to the Star of David, but we really must press on and focus at this point. Like, come on, come on. And he's talking about the blade and chalice again, because the poem that was in the cryptex made reference to the Holy Grail being underneath or being guarded by a blade and chalice. And he's thinking, I don't see any of these symbols looking like a blade or a chalice. Anyway, they're holding the box. They got the box off the plane because Fash was like, yeah, you have the box. And so then the docent's like, hey, that box looks familiar. It's all getting really drawn out, this long lost family getting reunited. It's, it's getting drawn out. He's like, I, I, I think I've seen this box before. And then Robert's got to neg him, this poor Scottish boy that he's just met. And Langdon goes, no, I don't think you have seen this box before. And he says, no, no, no. My grandmother has a box exactly like that. And it says, Langdon knew the young man must be mistaken. If ever a box had been one of a kind, it was this one. How do you know? How do you know? Robert, Sonia made it. Who's to say he couldn't have made another one? And so this poor Scottish boy's like, I don't know, it looks pretty similar. And Robert's like, you're mistaken. And then Sophie, she's walking out of the church, heading towards the cottage, off with the fairies. And so Langdon's like, where the hell's she going? And he says to the docent, what's over there? And the docent's like, oh, that's the chapel rectory. The chapel curator lives there. She also happens to be the head of the Rosalind Trust and my grandmother. And Langdon, he's like, your grandmother heads the Rosalind Trust? Like, okay, what, is that unexpected? Can grandmothers not run things? What the fuck's it? And he goes, yeah, I live with her in the rectory. Oh, this poor little like 20 year old, handsome Scottish brogue boy living with his grandma at the back of a church. Like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but go to uni and live on campus accommodation or something and live your life. It's nice to have a connection with your grandmother that raised you, but you're also, you're, you're living in a chapel, in a rectory with a grandma, go and live your life. And this docent who should really be kicking them out because, you know, it's closing time, get rid of these bloody tourists. He decides to tell his life story and he says, yes, I've lived there my whole life. My grandmother raised me in that house. And so now, now Langdon, he's like, wait a minute, grandmother? And then he's like, you said your grandmother has a box like this? And he says, yes, almost identical. And you shat on me when I suggested that. And he's like, where did she get it? And he says, my grandfather made it for her. He made all kinds of things. And Langdon's like, wait a minute. And he says, you said your grandmother raised you. And he's like, yes, I've, I've said it a million fucking times. And Langdon says, do you mind me asking what happened to your parents? Which is pretty fucking rude, but he, but he asks it. And he says, yeah, they died when I was young, the same day as my grandfather. And Langdon's like, oh, in a car accident, I bet. And he goes, yes, in a car accident. My entire family died that day. I lost my grandfather, my parents, and, and Langdon goes, yeah, and your sister. Let him finish the story, Langdon. No one likes this little one-upper finishing someone's sentences. So we're still dragging out the reunion. And so then Sophie, she's seeing the elderly woman at the cottage. 
and her back was to the door, but Sophie could see she was crying. Okay. The woman had a long, luxuriant silver hair that conjured an unexpected wisp of a memory, aka the memory of Sonia getting dicked down in the basement with the silver fox. That was actually his wife. So Sophie cut her grandfather out of her life because her grandfather was doing the deed with her grandmother. I mean, talk about dramatic irony. That's pretty fucking rough, Soph. Maybe you shouldn't have cut out your granddad for having a sex life. Oh, and also to to make matters more obvious, this silver fox, while she's crying, is clutching a framed photograph of Jacques Saunier. So, I mean, it's pretty fucking obvious. And so then she's like, hello? (laughs) And the grandmother turns around and she's like, oh shit, it's Sophie. And she's like, oh my God, look at you. She embraces her and she's like, Sophie. And Sophie's like, but grandpa said you were, and she's like, yeah, I know. He said we were dead. She says, your grandfather and I were forced to say so many things. We did what we thought was right. I'm so sorry. It was for your own safety, princess. So they effectively parent trapped these two kids. They split them up. They said, you take one to France. I'll take one to Scotland. And we'll never let them know that the other one exists. That's fucked up. You know what? Maybe if my granddad did that to me, I'd cut him out of my life too. I wouldn't cut him out for getting dicked down in a basement, but you know, don't, don't disconnect me from the rest of my family and lie about them dying. That's crazy. And Sophie's like, wait a minute. She called me princess. <gasps> Grandpere also called me princess. So she's like, putting it together. Even though princess is like a pretty common term of endearment. She's like, wow, I think she's my grandma. She just said your grandfather and I were forced to say so many things, but Sophie, let's just say she's tired because I think she's very tired to be this dumb. So the grandmother, she says, your grandfather wanted so badly to tell you everything, but things were difficult between you two. He tried so hard. There's so much to explain. And that's the thing. Like, I I feel like it could have been explained easily. I mean, as bonkers as it is to split up the family, if you really wanted to repair the relationship, you'd have to do that from a place of honesty in the first place. You'd have to clear things up and be like, look, Soph, that woman you saw me getting dicked down with, that silver fox was actually a grandmother. Yes, she's still alive. She's in witness protection. Like you'd say something like that. And then Sophie would be like, that's crazy. And then like five weeks later, she'd be like, you know what? I'm over it. I just want to see my grandma again and and be a family again. You know, like, I just feel like it could have been explained if you'd at least tried. Maybe I'm being naive, maybe I'm simplistic, but I I mean, I would have given it a go. Because ultimately, grandma, she's gonna go and explain it all now anyway. She says, no more secrets, princess. It's time you learn the truth about our family. Well, maybe you could have told her that 10 years ago. So then French Sophie, she's hugging the Scottish boy that's her brother. And suddenly she's feeling like she's home. And that's the end of that chapter. So then we go to chapter 105. Night has fallen. So they're still hanging out at the chapel in the chapel cottage. Langdon's been sitting there thinking. And so then the grandma comes and sits next to him and she's like, hey, what's up? And we find out that Sophie's grandmother's name for the last 28 years was Marie Chevelle. And she says, Mr. Langdon, when I first heard of Jacques' murder, I was terrified for Sophie's safety. Seeing her in my doorway tonight was the greatest relief of my life. I can't thank you enough. I don't know if Langdon really contributed to any of that. She was never in danger. That was all a lie from T-Bing to Silas to Jacques. So Marie had asked Robert to stay and have a chat because she's like, my husband obviously trusted you, Mr. Langdon, so I do as well. 
And so Langdon listened in mute astonishment. That must have been nice, a mute Robert Langdon. Ugh, I would never have thought. He listened in mute astonishment while Marie told the story of Sophie's late parents. Incredibly, both had been from Merovingian families, direct descendants of Mary Magdalene and Jesus Christ. Both of them, both of them. Sophie's parents and ancestors for protection had changed their family names of Plantard and St. Clair. Okay, so remember when Sophie had like the hunch that she was of Mary Magdalene's line and Robert said, no dummy, nouveau, that's not one of the ancient family names. Don't have tickets on yourself, you stupid bitch. And she was like, oh, okay, well, I just thought maybe. And he's like, yeah, well, you're not. And yeah, they just changed their names. Langdon, you never thought of that one, did you, bud? So their children represented the most direct surviving royal bloodline. The most, but not the only. And so when Sophie's parents were killed in a car accident whose cause could not be determined, the Priory feared the identity of the royal line had been discovered. I mean, it could have just been a car accident. I feel like you'd maybe not split up the family and put kids into hiding and lie to them about their heritage and their family just off of an accident, but they they did. So Marie says to Sophie, your grandfather and I had to make a grave decision the instant we received that phone call. Your parents' car had just been found in the river. All six of us, including you two grandchildren, were supposed to be traveling in that car that very night. So they they were all going to cram into one car. I don't get it. Fortunately, fortunately, we changed our plans at the last minute and your parents were alone. Hearing of the accident, Jacques and I had no way to know what had really happened or if this was truly an accident. I don't know. It seems like an accident. We knew we had to protect our grandchildren and we did what we thought was best. Jacques reported to the police that your brother and I had been in the car. Our two bodies apparently washed off in the current to never be seen again, even though the other two bodies were presumably found. And the police just didn't investigate that at all. They were like, okay. So then Marie and the brother went underground with the Priory. It only made sense that Sophie, being the eldest, would stay in Paris to be taught and raised by Jacques, close to the heart and protection of the Priory. What, how does that make sense? None of that makes sense. She says, separating the family was the hardest thing we ever had to do. Jacques and I saw each other only very infrequently and always in the most secret of settings. Mm, Don't we know it? Don't we know it? And Langdon's like, okay, yeah, I'm on board with that. But where's the fucking grail? He's like, I'm not interested in this metaphor business about her being the grail because she's the descendant of Mary Magdalene. He's like, where are the papers? Where are the receipts? And so Langdon says, well, what's going to happen to the Priory now with the Senna show dead? What happens? And she says, I don't worry about it. (laughs) She's like, that doesn't mean anything. She says, Mr. Langdon, the Brotherhood has endured for centuries and it will endure this. There are always those waiting to move up and rebuild. I thought the secret had died with them because only four people were trusted with the secret, but she's like, don't worry about it. And it says all evening, Langdon had suspected that Sophie's grandmother was closely tied to the operations of the Priory. After all, the Priory had always had women members and four grandmasters had been women. What? What? That's never been mentioned before. You can't drop that on me in the last chapter. And if four grandmasters had been women, where's the the proof of that? He's been listing names. There was that document that got leaked so everyone knows who all the grandmasters are and, and no women ever came up. Now we're retconning the Brotherhood. It's still called the Brotherhood, but apparently women were members. And it says the center show were traditionally men 
the guardians, and yet women held far more honored status within the priory and could ascend to the highest post from virtually any rank. So they're calling trumps. It's it's a chessboard all of, all of a sudden. We thought the center show with the bishops being able to move around, but then the queen's like, ha, motherfucker, I can go in any direction I want. So apparently the women in the brotherhood had all the power. Who, uh, I, I call B fucking S. You can't, ugh. And so he says, was the church pressuring your husband not to release the Sangreal document at the end of days? And she goes, oh God, no, heavens no. The end of days is a legend of paranoid minds. There is nothing in the Priory Doctrine that identifies a date at which the Grail should be unveiled. In fact, the Priory has always maintained that the Grail should never be unveiled. So the church wasn't pressuring them. So why'd they think the car accident was really a hit job? Who do they think was out to get them? None of it's making sense. And she's trying to fob him off being like, oh yeah, the grail is an enduring idea. It doesn't really matter. And he's like, yeah, but the the documents, we need the documents. If the documents remain hidden, the story of Mary Magdalene will be lost forever. And she says, will it? Look around you. Her story is being told in art, music, and books more so every day. And I'm like, oh God, please don't get into the little mermaid of it all. I don't have it in me. I do not have it in me to go through that again. But thankfully she doesn't. And she says, you mentioned you're writing a manuscript about the symbols of the sacred feminine, yeah? Why don't you just finish it? And he's like, okay. And he's like, yeah, that's great. Thanks for the chat. But, but, is the Holy Grail here? Like, could you just tell me? Like, just do me a solid and just let me know. And she's like, oh my God, fucking men. She says, why is it that men will not let the Grail rest? And she says, why do you think it's here? And he goes, well, the poem was pretty clear that it's here. And he goes, but... It did say there would be a blade and chalice here and there's no blade and chalice. And so she's schooling him because he is apparently a symbologist that knows everything, but she's like, yeah, there's a blade and chalice here, you dumb dummy. She says, what does a blade and chalice look like? And so she draws the triangle that's up and then she draws the triangle that's facing down. And then she's like, put them two together, what do you get? And he's like, oh my God, it's the Star of David. He's like, I didn't see those symbols anywhere. And then he's like, wait a minute, the Star of David. It's on the door, it's, it's on the floor of the chapel. He's like, wow, oh my God, a blade and chalice, this must be the place. Yep, the Holy Grail must be buried here, cool. He says the verse does point here to Roslyn, completely, perfectly. And she just goes, okay, apparently. And he's like, okay, so like, like, can you be committal? Like, is it in the vault beneath us right now? And she goes, only in spirit, mate. One of the Priory's most ancient charges was one day to return the Grail to her homeland of France, where she could rest for eternity. I still don't remember Mary Magdalene being French. I kind of thought she was born in Israel or something, but okay, apparently she's French. She's French. She says Jacques' charge when he became Grandmaster was to restore her honor by returning her to France and building her a resting place fit for a queen. And he's like, and, and she's like, oh, for fuck's sake. She goes, look, I'll tell you this. He was successful. It's no longer here, but I can't say where it's hidden. And he's like, I think it's here. I think like, if that were the case, why is it pointing to this chapel? And she's like, mate, maybe it's a metaphor. Maybe it's got a double meaning. I'm sick of fucking talking here. And so he reads out the verse. The Holy Grail neath ancient Rosalind waits, the blade and chalice guarding over her gates. Adorned in master's loving art, she lies. She rests at last beneath the starry skies. And so she's just like, yeah, all right, cool. Sounds about right. But Langdon's not convinced. And so then she says, look, mate, I've never actually been privy to the present location of the Grail. 
but I was married to a person of influence and my women's intuition is strong. Pretty sure it's not here. Pretty sure Jacques hid it somewhere away in Paris. And she's like, I think you'll figure it out. Just think about it a little bit harder and I think you'll figure it out. So she walks off. She's like, I'm going to bed. I'm done with you. I'm done femsplaining to you how the Holy Grail works. And so then Langdon and Sophie are just hanging out. And okay, then we need to wrap up their sexual tension storyline, which hasn't really been present throughout the book, but I guess they're in love. They're holding hands, looking out at the countryside in the night sky and the stars were appearing and Langdon smiles when he sees a single point of light glowing brighter than any other. And he's like, oh, that's Venus, the ancient goddess shining down with her steady and patient light. I thought he didn't care for astronomy. I thought he wasn't a man of science. He was a man of art, but okay, he's, he loves Venus. And so he says, I'm not going to stay for a few days. I'm going to go to Paris in the morning. Sorry, I'm not really good at goodbyes. And she's like, well, maybe we can see each other again. And he goes, yeah, okay. Well, I'm actually lecturing at a conference in Florence next month. And she's like, I don't live in fucking Florence. What, what is Langdon thinking? Like, Carl, can I see you again? Yes, I'm actually going to be in Florence next month. And she's like, I live in Paris. That's a different country. Anyway, so they arrange to meet up in Florence. And so she leans forward and kisses him and their bodies came together. And then when she pulled away, she was like, it's a date. And so I, I guess they've got chemistry all of a sudden. And so that's the end of that chapter. Then we go to the epilogue and he's back in the Hotel Ritz Paris. And he only knows he's in the Hotel Ritz Paris because he's looking at the bathrobe and it's monogram saying it's the Hotel Ritz Paris. The way this man can never wake up knowing where he is unless there's a bathrobe pointing him in the right direction. <laughs> at least we're ending the book how we started. It's a very full circle moment. And he's had a brainwave all of a sudden. He's like, wait a minute. I think I figured it out. And so then Dan Brown wants to drag it out longer He's giving every direction that Langdon's taken walking out of this stupid fucking hotel. He's going into the Place Vendôme. He's turning left on the Rue des Petits Champs. He's turning south onto the Rue Rouchelot. He's heading through the gardens of the Palais Royal. He's, ho- he's heading nord. He's heading sud. He's cutting across the corner of the Comédie Française. And he's following these little brass circle dot thingies that are in the ground indicating the line of the rose, the rose line or some bullshit. He's following the rose line through Paris, even though he already knows where he's going. He's following the line and he's thinking, oh my God, did I jag it? Did I actually figure it out? Did Sonia want to talk to me because I had unknowingly guessed the truth? And so then he's jogging down the rose line. I mean, the grail's not going anywhere, buddy. You don't need a jog, but he's jogging, he's jogging. Then he's going through the tunnel of the Passage Richelieu finally he gets to the fucking Louvre. Let me just like cut to the chase because Dan Brown's not going to. So he gets to the Louvre. He's looking at the Louvre pyramid. Basically, it's the blade and the chalice, an upside down pyramid, a facing up pyramid. He's looking at the pyramid in Versailles. He goes into the museum. He looks at the pyramid in Versailles. He looks up when there's a sky full of stars. He's realizing that the clue mentioned that it was nestled in a place of art. I don't know why he didn't think of the Louvre earlier, honestly. And I think Marie back in Scotland was like, oh my God, dude, he was the curator of the Louvre. Where do you think he hid the grail documents? The curator of the Louvre. And it still took him like a couple more days to actually get there. And she was like, he's a man of influence being the curator of the Louvre. And Langdon's like, yep, could be anywhere. 
could be anywhere in France. I'm stumped. And so the line in his manuscript said, the miniature structure itself, talking about the pyramid in Versailles, protrudes up through the floor as though it were the tip of an iceberg. The apex of an enormous pyramidical vault submerged below like a hidden chamber. So what he's saying is that that little tiny pyramid is actually super fucking big and it's actually a chamber underneath the Louvre. And he thinks he's just guessed it. And so Sonia read that and was like, oh no, I'm going to be found out. I need to invite Robert Langdon over for a drink. So he's thinking, what better place for Sonia to keep watch? Like, like he's a bloody genius. He's figured it out. And so he thinks the quest for the Holy Grail is the quest to kneel before the bones of Mary Magdalene, a journey to pray at the feet of the outcast one. So he falls to his knees and he prays and that's the end of the book. Oh my goodness me, all of that. And we don't even get into the chamber. He's just praying at the Louvre. He could be wrong. That's the thing. He was sure that the Roseland Chapel was correct. He was convinced the poem pointed directly there, explicitly there. No other options could be considered. And now he's on his second guess and he's like, this is it. And he's just kneeling down and praying like a dingbat at the Louvre. Ah, that's the Da Vinci Code, guys. Did we have fun? I've loved making fun of this book and I hope you've enjoyed it as well. As I said earlier, I'm dropping the 365 days episodes from the vault and then I'm coming back at ya in 2023 or around then. I don't really know. I haven't looked at a calendar, but I'm going to be coming back with Breaking Dawn. So I'll see you guys then. And if you want to keep up with me, you can also go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash breaking down bad books. And you can hear the 50 shades freed recap weekly. I'll see you guys when I see ya. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.